Welcome to DevOps and Docker Talk, and I'm your host, Brett Fisher. In this episode, I had a couple of the staff from Veritas, the company that makes net backup amongst many other data protection tools. Have you heard of net backup? It's been around at least 25 years, and I've been using it over 20 years, off and on. And I haven't used it in a few years, so we had some gentlemen on the show to break down the evolution of net backup to a Kubernetes native backup solution, as well as additional products that make sense in a backup context, like their InfoScale storage management solution. And we try to break down some of the technicals. What are we talking about when we mean deploying net backup on Kubernetes? How does InfoScale fit into that? And generally just helping me catch up with the last few years as net backup 10.0 has been released. So I had on the show Joe D'Angelo and Demetrius Malbro, and we talk through a lot of the details. I ask lots of questions. We get some questions from the audience. So please enjoy this episode with Veritas. Hello, and welcome to the show. And I'm joined today by some experts because I need to learn some of this tech. We've got Demetrius and Joe. Thank you both for being here. Thanks for having us, Brett. This is great. Thanks for having us. I'm going to read off some titles so everyone knows who who's who. We got Demetrius Malborough, and he is the technology's cloud advocate. That sounds so fancy at Veritas. It is fancy. <laughs> Demetrius, what do you do for us? Uh, let's see. So primarily, I am out there speaking about our products and changing the perception around the old view of backup to the more modernized version of where backup is headed, especially with containers. So that's kind of a nutshell in, in what I do. Nice. Yeah, I think you and I, we've... We go back a ways in the enterprise space and the storage and backup space. So we certainly got, we could certainly have a whole podcast where we tell tales of disasters. that Our stories, everything. Yeah, that's right. Yes. That's yes. right. And we got Joe D'Angelo on the side there, the director and distinguished engineer at Veritas. Joe, what are you going to do for us today? Well, first of all, Brett, thanks again for having me. You know, Demetrius in the middle sounds like a new sitcom that's uh, going to be playing here. <laughs> <laughs> well, so my role at Veritas, I'm the director of product management for our software-defined storage and resiliency solution. So hopefully what uh, your listeners and viewers today are going to learn about is how we can help uh, uh, address the needs of stateful and persistent storage needs for uh, applications Kubernetes and give you some insights there. Nice. Now, full disclosure, I have use net backup off and on and i was trying to figure out which version the other day that i first use and i don't my memory it doesn't go back that far but if for those of you that haven't heard of net backup it is not a new player in this game it has been around for decades to me it was one of the gold standards of backups in the sort of pre-cloud era and as we got into the cloud and things became more complicated what i see a lot with backups is very storage specific or tool specific backup solutions. And we've had multiple backup tools on this show, open source stuff, talking about talking about Kubernetes backups. But one of the things that I, I thought we'd jump off with is the reality that not everything's on Kubernetes yet, right? Like we've all got right. other things out there. And if you're a sysadmin more on the operations side, like I am, you probably have multiple backup technologies. So Demetrius, can we talk a little bit real quick about like sort of the evolution of net backup, where it came from and how it's, how is it doing today on Kubernetes? Well, actually, so if you go back and look at the evolution just overall of backup and recovery and, and storage, it's been around for quite some time. And it's also been around 
not only for protection capabilities, but individuals used to say that it's for insurance purposes. But mm. today with artificial intelligence and ransomware and all these different types of threats that are out there right now, I don't look at backup as an insurance policy right now. So you may have systems on-prem running in your data center, or you may have your data also in the cloud as well. You, you definitely have to make sure that you have the capability in order to capture those workloads. You, have, you need a solution that's going to be portable, uh, one that's flexible, one that's elastic, and one that's capable of capturing all of your data and also allowing you to recover that data. And so moving from tape backup, tape backup was the old way. So you would, and, and I'm sure your guests, may, maybe they haven't, 321, the old 321 backup rule, right? So three different copies, making sure that those three copies are on two different types of media, one media possibly offsite. And then you also have another copy as well that you can also make sure that you can recover from that as well. So. Those are just kind of some of the old, old ways of, of looking at things, but moving to where we are today with containers, regardless of where your workloads are running, you, you need to make sure that you have a solution like, like a net backup or an info scale that can give you that application resiliency and can also back up all of your data, regardless of the workload that you have, regardless of the operating system, and also regarding of the distribution of Kubernetes or uh, any other container containerized uh, workloads. Yeah, I was actually, while you were talking about it, I was thinking about like the evolution of backups to these, I wouldn't say complicated necessarily, but a product that has lots of sort of tentacles into its architecture as well as expanding on scope of what it means to, I mean, we, Joe's really good at all these mm -hmm. terminologies that I don't, I don't use, but like yes. the buzzwords around like the storage and backups, disaster recovery, like read-only file systems, verification, hashing of data to ensure integrity, all these things weren't traditionally associated with backups. And now it's like, if you're an enterprise that's taking all this seriously, you know, a cron job to copy some files into a tarball is not sufficient anymore. It's not sexy either. Yeah, that's true. I think the, the threats that we're seeing these days are more sophisticated. The expectations of our end user community is more sophisticated. So the solutions that we implement have to be more sophisticated. And if you look at the sort of homogenization of all of those services that you just mentioned, right, the different types of file systems, different recovery methodologies, disaster recovery and resiliency and data protection and storage, these are all basically morphing into a singular spectrum of availability and the needs for discrete products that are unique to only one platform or one application, those don't really scale super well. And those sometimes become complicated to uh, implement across different platforms. So we've always been keen to say, you know, the, the as new platforms get introduced, how do we bolster our customers' you know, needs around implementing their primary applications, protecting those primary applications, but also benefit from those platforms? Hence why with Kubernetes, not only can we help customers achieve the, the recovery expectations, but Veritas ourselves, we can actually benefit from it, right? By containerizing those individual components, making the experience more efficient and more cloud native, and certainly more you know, akin to what your DevOps community that you're so, you know, so proud to be the champion for can you know, associate with and, and identify with. Yeah, we've got a question and it's actually a pretty good starting point. What's the main pitch for net backup? Is this something for the cloud or more of the enterprise world? 
Who's going to take that All one? All of the above, right? <laughs> <laughs> so you, you have to realize that net, net backup has evolved. And, and Veritas also has evolved as a company as well. So, yes, we've been around for quite some time. And we are protecting. We're in lots of data centers. We're in the cloud. And we are primarily in a lot of enterprise environments. And so if you think about scaling your environment and you think about protecting as many workloads as possible, then you have to realize that net backup is still around. And the innovation that our engineers have also uh, put into the product as well by decoupling the physical aspects of what net backup used to be and containerizing that, running that cloud natively, that's something that has taken place over the last few years. So we are protecting on-prem workloads as well as workloads that are in the cloud. And even with InfoScale, you're able to even do some migration of workloads as well. And you have that high availability and also that resiliency. So if you are running in AWS, then you could possibly you know, migrate that data over to, to, to Azure as well. So kind of unlocking and freeing your data and also giving you that portability that you need. So definitely Veritas has you covered from a net backup perspective and an info scale perspective. So making sure that your workloads continue to run. And if something happens bad, we know that, you know, all the things are out there, ransomware and cyber attacks and malware and social engineering, it's out there. So what do you do before that happens? And what do you do after that happens? I think there's a degree of autonomy that we also provide. If you think about the, again, the variance in the different platforms and different applications and different needs of the levels of business criticality, there is no one size fits all. There absolutely is no one product that is going to be able to address the complete and total need of every single application you have and every single business need. But what Veritas allows us to do is give you the our end user community the ability to right size the, the solution so that if it is a tier one or a tier zero type workload as a very stringent or very strict RPO or RTO, we can address that. If it's something a little bit more closer to the center where the RPO could be in the days, you know, m- many hours or even days, you can have a re- you can have a recovery policy or a process that can align to that. And then even further out, if it's something that could be, you know, on a matter of weeks or even longer, th- again, you don't have to apply a super expensive uh, process to protect a what would be relatively insignificant workload and vice versa a you know a free open source tool might not have all the enterprise capabilities to address the tier zero and tier one applications that are from a an rpo and rto perspective Um, so again it's that degree of autonomy uh, and a degree of flexibility in choosing which platforms that you want to run it on okay so net backup is not a SaaS, correct so we have SaaS capabilities. We have a, okay. within our data protection portfolio, we have an entire SaaS protection elements have been called Alta SaaS protection. Uh, and then we do have backup as a service with net backup. Yes. Okay. So if I'm an engineer, because that's who's watching this channel, right? Am I always installing a net backup infrastructure, the, the net backup servers, or do you also provide that? So we actually allow for both. It depends on, on the environment and the preference. So if you want to run in the cloud and you want to run as a backup, as a service, you absolutely can utilize the capabilities from that that particular uh, form factor. Or if you want to own the infrastructure yourself and deploy it as, as it would be in other infrastructure as a service or on-prem, you can do that as well. Okay. Yeah. What do you call net backup as a service? Is that a different name or is that... Well, I, I I don't know if I want to name names, but <laughs> because n- names are, are, are always changing. 
Um, but but what I do want to say is that can we protect applications, uh, software as a service applications? So think Salesforce, right? So we can protect that data, right? And Box and Microsoft 365. So we do have those capabilities. And, and if you can't come to the table with your own infrastructure, then we have that for you, right? So it's okay. as simple as you logging into a web UI and selecting the workloads that you want to protect and uh, we actually are able to go out and do some some automatic scanning and, and and back up your infrastructure and make sure that you can recover when you when you need it. So that's about the simplest way I, I can put it without really going so deep into different names. But we are protecting um, SaaS applications. Okay, because my I think what we're talking about here is the infrastructure, right? So if I'm yeah. a net backup, and I come from the old days of like there's a backup engineer in my team, right? And they manage all of the backup products and they've got to manage that infrastructure. And I think one of the things that I learned as we, as y'all reached out and we started talking was mm -hmm. NetBackup has had this evolution, I guess maybe it was at 10.0 that started the sort of running on Kubernetes. Mm -hmm. Was that, so we're currently on 10.2 or something like that or close to that. And so when 10.0 came out for NetBackup, I really wish I could remember which version. I don't know if I was a net backup 1.0 person, but I was pretty close. Um, <laughs> that would have been that would have been open open vision. That would have been prior before to it was the, before it was net backup probably the yeah yeah the yeah. yeah yeah it's probably Novell Netware. I mean those days. Yeah. So yeah yeah oh so, not that far back. Come on now. <laughs> so net backup now doesn't just backup persistent volumes and things in Kubernetes, right? It also can run on Kubernetes. And can someone tell me a little bit of that story about you, you basically had to evolve a product that predates containers and basically make it run in containers and be deployable. I think I saw somewhere a Helm chart. So mm -hmm. we can talk a little bit about that, that, that story of evolution of NetBackup. Sure. So if you think about the architecture, the classic architecture of, you know, installing your own infrastructure and understanding the different operating system support, what we've basically done is we've looked across our portfolio and it's both NetBackup and InfoScale. And we said, how can we containerize? How can we turn these services into microservices in a way that allows you to deploy with uh, greater scale, greater ease, things like upgrades and adapting to new, new capabilities all becomes uh, almost an afterthought because of the nature of that architecture. So over the course of the, the last Last few years through the um, introduction we call our cloud scale technology uh, on the data protection side, we've taken and turned the classic net backup capabilities into a set of microservices that allow you to leverage all of the benefits of, of Kubernetes for the use of that product, but also protect the infrastructure and protect the ecosystem and the, and the workloads that are going to be running inside of that, to that Kubernetes, you know, namespaces and pods, et cetera. Yeah. So that's one of the questions. That's sort of what exactly in Kubernetes does net backup backup? So effectively the entire namespaces, the pods, the containers themselves, the various metadata components, all of those pieces can be protected inside of net backup. And then when you look to extend those capabilities for the purposes of disaster recovery, that's when then the InfoScale layer comes in where we can actually take and replicate that data across different peer clusters across essentially any distance. So through a combination of NetBackup and InfoScale, you do get this comprehensive ability to protect the entire ecosystem within a Kubernetes you know, footprint. Yeah. And you were talking earlier before we went live around that, you know, obviously backups use a lot of storage. And I think mm -hmm. that in the history of everyone that's ever run a backup system, we always underestimate our storage needs, right? I think I remember, right, you yeah, know, right. I think I used to read like three times, you know, the the back of the napkin was three times the amount of that stuff you're going to back up 
you need that much in backup storage. And I always found that that was not never enough because especially in bigger companies, you want an insane amount of copies of backups going back a large, a long time. <laughs> and for those of us that, you know, we, when we first learned backup technology, we had to learn about incrementals versus differentials and syncing. And once we ended up getting into block storage and there's all this terminology that if you're just a developer, or if you've never had to manage uh, backup technology, there's so much terminology when it comes to storage and backup. Sometimes I feel like it's a different language. It's just a when you start talking about snapshotting and iSCSI and yeah. NFS mm-hmm. versus uh, block storage, all these different ways. And when you're in an inter- enterprise, you start to care about things like storage driver versions and you get really nerded out on the protocols, the speeds, the performance things, the caching, all these different parts of it. So let's. I'm interested a little bit in some of the high level features that maybe aren't common in like open source tools and stuff like that. Because one of the things, one, is I learned that NetBackup, tell me if I'm wrong, NetBackup is on the backup and recovery side and InfoScale is more on the storage management side, but that they work together, right? Yep. Because I did see something in, the, in one of the pages around InfoScale providing the ability to move storage between clusters or regions mm-hmm. right. in the cloud, mm-hmm. which that's the kind of thing that typically somebody will ask if we can do that. We, the DevOps engineers or whoever is managing the infrastructure. And we yeah. usually end up coming up with hand, we figure out solutions manually instead of having a sort of a click button, easy tool. Can you talk a little bit about like InfoScale and some of those yeah. high level features yeah. for Kubernetes? Yeah, I, I absolutely can. You know, and I can appreciate that, you know, the DevOps community is one where they want to solve the problems yeah. and they're problem solvers and they're engineers by trait. And it's the kind of thing where it's like, hey, I think I can make this work. And it's it's kind of like a sense of accomplishment. But when you start talking about at scale, when you start talking about the impact to a broader ecosystem and an enterprise, you have to start to think about how can I do this for uh, a variety of different applications that all may have varying uh, expectations of performance, recoverability and scale. So what InfoScale by design is intended to do is deliver a software-defined storage experience. And essentially what we developed going back 30 plus years is this notion of taking physical storage components and virtualizing them under the umbrella of a single logical object or a volume. And with that, you can you know, execute a number of data, data service components or elements, I should say, whether it's replication and snapshots, all those things that you, you discussed. But in the case of Kubernetes, What's unique here is that we allow for you know direct access to those storage resources and, and in turn providing for a persistent or stateful workload, the ability to recover locally with varying degrees of, of, of uh, snapshot facilities. Um, we have the different um, storage classes that you actually can implement, different YAML classes that will either determine a performance, resiliency, or capacity need, depending on the workload, right? It could be that one particular application needs to be of the highest level performance, and we can allocate the storage such that it, it, it achieves that. If it needs something that is more resilient, we can add additional mirrors or different layers of resiliency to that. And that could be within a single availability zone in the cloud. It could be across multiple availability zones in the cloud. It could be across different storage technologies on-prem, be it direct attached devices or SAN attached devices. Either one of those would work all within the same sort of storage pool. We also take into account the circumstances around split brain scenarios between nodes within a, a Kubernetes cluster. You could have scenarios where different nodes lose communication and we have IO fencing mechanisms built into the InfoScale framework to allow for that so that you don't get, so you can avoid data corruption under those sort of circumstances. Real quick, what is IO fencing? 
IO fencing is essentially an arbitration mechanism that allows for the scenario where if you do have a split brain, which is essentially a network partition between nodes of a cluster, that you ensure that there isn't uh, inadvertent data access across the nodes and that you can't have one system writing to disks that it shouldn't really shouldn't be. And it's a concept and a mechanism that we've had in place for years with you know enterprise storage and enterprise applications, and we've adopted it for the, the Kubernetes space as well. And it's an important consideration for data integrity, right? We the you know, we are managing what is the primary data source for these workloads, and we want to ensure that the, they're, you know, resilient, redundant, and can stand up in the event of whatever, you know, impact may come, be it a logical corruption or some sort of, you know, physical infrastructure fault. And of course, all of that's extensible for disaster recovery as well, right? If there's something that's an issue that's more systemic throughout the environment and you need to sort of extricate your applications from that particular cluster, we allow for the replication of that, that uh, namespace and that uh, metadata about those environments to another Kubernetes cluster altogether that would be out of what we call the blast radius of that particular impact. And these are all mechanisms that, again, they're containerized functions. Before that they, with the way they were deployed, they had to be managed somewhat independently of one another and required some, you know, more level of sophistication. Today, we've taken all those elements, containerized them in a way that they can be managed, say, from directly the inside the Red Hat OpenShift dashboard, right? So that you can have a very easy experience that can solve for all of those challenges, which don't go away when you containerize an app. Um, they continue to persist. You still need that same level of recoverability, but now it's under the guise of a, of a Kubernetes framework instead of what was previously just a you know a Linux host or a Windows host or a Unix host. Um, so yeah, taking those capabilities and sort of rolling them forward in a more modern uh, form factor. And also, nice. Britt, I, I see a question which I think Joe would really appreciate answering. Can you, let's see, backup managed service like databases in the context of an application running on Kubernetes? And how would you configure that? So the footprint for InfoScale, or say the use case for InfoScale, is one of persistent stateful applications. So a relational database would be a perfect example of that, a MySQL or a, you know, a similar type, where you need to have the ability to recover not just locally, but remotely. So yeah, any workload that is containerized that's sitting inside of a pod, we absolutely can provide that persistent storage, but then in turn replicate that to pretty much any location, right? Whatever, whatever capacity you have, whatever bandwidth you have, we can take advantage of and replicate that geographically, you know, intercontinentally, whatever works for you in terms of where you want to recover those environments too. And this would be under the guise of a very stringent or strict RPO, RTO. Locally, the RTOs and RPOs would be very short. You know, we're talking matter of, you know, no data loss in a matter of seconds or even a, a minute or so to move those and recover those workloads. Whereas remotely, we're talking about an asynchronous type model. So the time to recover those may be a little bit longer, uh, but certainly it's the trade-off when you talk about recovering something in a wide area context. Yeah, and I just wanted to add on to that. And so I, the way I interpreted that question as well is that you're talking stateful application. So you're talking your Cassandra your MongoDB, your PostgreSQL, and MySQL, and, and all of those different types of databases. That's exactly what, what we're doing, and that's exactly what we're protecting, is that application to make sure that it continues to be resilient and it's also protected. So hoping that answers your question. Yeah, he was talking about, he was asking about RDS databases or cloud databases. Okay. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yep. So from an InfoScale standpoint, because RDS is a little bit more of a closed off architecture, right? I mean, it is a, it's a database service. You don't have the same, I would say, exposure to that. In the case of an infrastructure as a service example, where we actually can deploy InfoScale traditionally under, the, under an IIS type model, 
we could protect that in the same way. Um, but for an RDS architecture, that would be a little bit different, right? That would be something you'd have to rely more on the CSP to to be responsible for. Yeah. So getting back to the Kubernetes discussion, the 10.0 release is where if I'm a Kubernetes admin, not only can I back up Kubernetes, but I can decide to run my net backup architecture on Kubernetes, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the things I was reading through in some of the technical documentation was if, if someone's never actually deployed one of these enterprise backup solutions, it's not just a single server with a bunch of disks connected to it. When you think about hundreds of servers, maybe even thousands of servers in a data center, mm -hmm. you have to actually have a bunch of different nodes to even handle the bandwidth I remember back when Gigabit was new, we had Gigabit Ethernet and it was really exciting. Fiber channel. Before yeah. we yeah, before Fiber channel and 10 Gigabit and all these fancy things took off, you know, and so we would have to deploy every, we had a ratio, right? It was like for every 50 new servers we put into production in the data center, we needed another node. I don't even know what the right terminology is that for anymore. Data from mover, the yeah, media server. Yeah. Media yeah. server, yeah. So I had to add another media server to my pool because the gigabit lines were already saturated and we would have these scenarios where we would also only have like six hours to do backups a night, right? Because mm -hmm. it would really stress disks. CP, you know, back when CPUs were a little slower, we, would, we wouldn't want production hours to be where, when we were doing big backups, especially of databases, right? Because we would, you'd have to freeze a database before you could back it up and you'd have to push the logs all into the database. And there was all this concern around timing. Of course, this is back when we didn't have 24 seven everything. <laughs> Right, so you could do things close. at night because you were, yeah, you you knew right. that people weren't in the office usually, so you could back it up at night. But we would have windows where we were allowed to back up from, let's say, 11 p.m. to 5 a.m. And gigabit was, we we would saturate it, and we would have to add more servers, and then we eventually had to scale to a dedicated backup network because we we didn't want to clog up all the lines, and we had to add more servers to the backup system so that we could parallelize all these backups to get them done in eight hours because right. yeah. we were doing, you were usually doing full snapshots and they would be really big and you would do that once a week or whatever. Is that still, like obviously we've graduated to fiber channel 10 gigabit or more, 40 gigabit or whatever. Is that still a lot of struggle for people to manage all that? I mean, how has that changed in the last You, you know what, I, I would say that that's probably an environment and maybe a small shop so if, if you look at the way uh, environments are architected today and with public cloud and, you know, cloud native environments, you know, and, and you have developers and DevOps where everything is automated. So think about workloads and being able to go use Terraform to just automate everything so you don't have to log into the web UI in order to configure uh, all of your backups and figure out what the window is. And that's also one of the reasons why uh, NetBackup was decoupled and also containerized as well. So all of that jazz of spinning up, spinning down enterprise versus, you know, how many pods do I need to spin up to take care of this backup workload? All of right. that's done automatically for you in, in the mm. background. And it has the intelligence to spin those up, spin those down. And you as the backup administrator or even the business user, you have no idea. So mm. it's definitely graduated from the old antiquated days. And I used to be a backup administrator. I have horror stories, wearing a pager, I had yep. major Christmases messed up. I mean, I was working one night in a large Oracle database went down. We had clustered backup servers, both servers crashed, all hundreds of backups failed. It was just a horrible Christmas. And so 
I used to have to figure out how am I going to bring up these servers in which order, which systems are critical. I have to call the uh, database owners. I have to call my manager. It was a lot of manual effort, a lot of manual work. And so with the innovation of what's taking place today, especially uh, where NetBackup is with cloud scale technology and kind of what we're doing on the autonomous data management side where we're utilizing you know, some AI with anomaly detection to identify things like malware and you know anything that does, that's not looking like it involves or it should be within a backup, we can alert on those things. And so nowadays, DevOps and DevSecOps, you can definitely uh, take a look at the, the net backup platform, use, utilize our APIs, our RESTful APIs, and also incorporate uh, automating workloads and also include the backups within that as well. So are we talking about that sort of net backup has evolved to an infrastructure as code design where we're actually, is it YAML that's actually defining these, the backup jobs and all that stuff? Well, you can take advantage of utilizing YAML in order to automate some of the workloads in the background. And Joe, I don't know if you want to add and jump in here and add anything about the specifics on that, but I do know that it's capable to tap into the APIs and to utilize YAML to do certain jobs and to run yeah. configurations and backups on the back end. I think what, what we're really trying to get to a place where the elasticity that you're afforded to by using Kubernetes extends now into the data protection, storage, resiliency space so that as your environment grows or expands or contrasts in accordance with the needs of your enterprise, so does then the infrastructure to support that. So in the case of backups, it would be adding in additional services, adding in addition, you know, spinning up different pods to, to account for the different demands and increased in, you know, workloads that gets generated. And then the storage side, it's really being able to be dynamic in terms of how that storage is allocated and how it can be adjusted in accordance with the needs of the of the application. If it needs to be, you know, converted to from say a particular layout or a particular media type or a particular associated number of nodes within a particular Kubernetes space to increase the scale. All of that, again, can be done uh, elastically, non-disruptively, and in response to the needs of your business. And again, treating it as a right-sized approach, not trying to force you know, a rigid structure that existed on-prem 15, 20 years ago into a, you know, a, a cloud form factor, but rather embracing those technologies in a way that allows you to grow and scale and not be as concerned with some of those daunting tasks of those holiday backup regimens that, that, that ruin your holidays. I've had my fair share of you know, <laughs> nights that, that you get paged and brought in you know, back in the day as well. So we all have those horror stories. I even think there's like a Reddit subthread about, you know, uh, sysadmin nightmares or something like that. It's a great, a great read. But yeah, so that's what we're, I have a very good colleague of mine that likes to use the expression, I sell weekends. And that's kind of the expression right here. Mm -hmm. We want to make sure that you have your time back to focus not on the infrastructure, but on what your business needs are, right? So that you aren't concerned with some of those, that minutia as much anymore as it is, how do I delight my customers? How do I make my next, you know, set of services route to market faster? And how do I ensure that I can, you know, stay ahead of the curve? Yeah. Obviously there's business goals and then, but because this show is, we're implementers here. I can't help but go and looking around the Veritas site for various diagrams that will show some of this infrastructure. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. you know, I, I was looking at this and trying to imagine what, if I'm someone who's sort of a gr growing company and I'm having to evolve from yeah. the sort of single cluster or single node mindset or something where I'm, you know, 
RDS has backups, right? And I configure that in AWS. And yep. that's one thing. But then yep. I end up inevitably with a bunch of persistent storage. And I maybe even have legacy apps because I've worked with a lot of legacy app teams that have moved to containers and brought their monolith with them. And inevitably, we're struggling with containers that are not stateless like we wish they were. Right. So we have to deal with maybe the configurations and are in the container and built at runtime, or maybe there's caching. One of those, I think one of the scenarios too with some apps is because there's sometimes caching or things that are happening during pod spinup, it sometimes might mm -hmm. be faster to recover from a pod that even isn't technically stateful it, to recover from a pod that has a backup rather than have the pod spin up automatically. I, re, in the last couple of years, I actually had a scenario where the pods were having to download a bunch of files that were literally in the tens of gigabytes before the pod could be fully ready. And you know, if we had a snapshot of that, that might be faster than actually recovering the pod and starting it fresh to have it re-download all that stuff. So when I look at diagrams like this, where we're basically talking about different types of storage underneath, we've got local storage, we've got remote storage, we might have SANS, we might have NASs involved. This is my jam from my old enterprise data center days. Yep. So yep. for those that are listening on the podcast, <laughs> I mean, we talk a lot about OpenShift because obviously that's more popular in the enterprise, but this can run on any Kubernetes, right? This architecture? So for InfoScale, we run on Red Hat OpenShift as well as vanilla Kubernetes, and we're looking to expand to a variety of other distros as well. So looking at expanding into the AKS, EKS of the world. But if you were to just deploy infrastructure as a service, and, and some customers we do have do that, they deploy infrastructure as a service and run vanilla Kubernetes in the cloud, we can support that as well. But our big focus as of late has been to you know, proliferate as, as widely as we can in the OpenShift space, as we see a, a majority of our enterprise customers are actually really you know, adopting that or embracing mm -hmm. that, whether it's ARO or on-prem with, with OpenShift. InfoScale isn't dedicated hardware storage, right? It's, it's a pure software solution? It's a pure software solution. It lives on the worker nodes within the uh, the Kubernetes space. They're at the containers that get deployed right out of the OpenShift catalog, or if it's vanilla Kubernetes, it can be right from our own set of distribution or our own you know download center. The infrastructure itself, from a storage perspective, it can pretty much reside on any block storage that the Kubernetes cluster themselves is attached to. And in the case of on-prem, that can be a mixture of direct attached, local storage, NVMe devices, as well as SAN attached, iSCSI, whichever. In the cloud, typically it's going to obviously be an EBS or Azure, you know, premium disk or something along those lines. But those essentially are SAN storage anyway. But at the end of the day, what we allow for is the pooling of those storage devices. So you can have nodes that live in one particular AZ as well as a, a separate distinct AZ. And then we can mirror the data together, which gives mm -hmm. us added flexibility and added control where natively you wouldn't have that, right? EBS storage and uh, is uh, unique to a single availability zone. So in that case, we right. overcome some of those limitations. Yeah, and you're doing this, all, you're managing all this. We're kind of talking about hybrid right now, right? Like we're talking about that I probably have, if I'm an enterprise, I probably have permanent connections, VPNs, whatever, between me and the cloud. I've got some yep. workloads in the cloud, some on on-prem and data center. I used to work at a company mm -hmm. that we would migrate workloads yeah. based on mm -hmm. seasonality where we had more expansion maybe in the cloud, but it, when it was small, yep. we would actually run it on-prem because it was cheaper. And it sounds like, so InfoScales has like a list maybe of compatibility storage types. So you mentioned iSCSI. A lot of people in the cloud, if they're pure cloud people, these terminologies like fiber channel, iSCSI. They're irrelevant to a certain yeah, extent. They, yeah, they don't have to deal yeah. with that anymore. They're living the good life. 
But those of us that still live in the data center, we still have this stuff, right? Like, I guess, yeah. I guess nowadays is iSCSI 10 gigabits the standard in a data yeah. center is, I don't even know. Yeah. I don't even know anymore yeah. if there's common, faster ethernet than 10 gigabit. Because I, I was back in the big data centers back when 10 gigabit was all, the new hotness. And we were yeah. excited mm -hmm. that we could actually do some of it on shorter runs over copper instead of fiber because fiber was so expensive. Sure. And, and we were able to avoid the fiber channel days of these multi-thousand dollar cards and yeah it's fc over ethernet yeah. now so you've got a lot okay. of sort of the converged type models where you're essentially seeing all traffic converging over a particular you know set of you know network interconnects for us the compatibility remains if the storage is visible to the host if it's a block storage resource we in i would say 99 percent of the cases are going to be able to what we call initialize that storage and manage it we have a very robust list of storage partners that we work with for those who continue to proliferate on-prem but the uniqueness of what we offer is the ability to target that storage that exists externally to the cluster as well as storage that exists locally which allows for again that blended performance needs where you might have a workload that has very latency averse and it, need, it needs direct attached storage to overcome that latency but it also can't sacrifice any of the redundancy or resiliency that comes with those shared storage resources so we tend to give you the best of both worlds with again with this concept of flexible storage sharing and then from there you can leverage a combination of nvme devices with you know a pci direct attached you can take advantage of again the different classes the different yaml classes for that particular workload so if it is a capacity need we can configure the storage to maximize the amount of usable space. If it's a pure performance, then we maximize the performance and throughput for that particular class. And then if it's a blended approach where you're looking at resiliency and, and a little bit of both, we have a class that can allow for that as well. So we do try to address as wide of a set of use cases. And interestingly enough, one of the ones we're coming out with our next release coming up in December, we've got our .03 release for it. We're actually going to be addressing an ephemeral use case. So for certain workloads where there may be a stateless application, but our super performance, have super performance concerns, we'll be able to actually provision an ephemeral storage uh, resource that would still have those same functionality, but would not necessarily have to persist over the, the same way a stateful application would. So kind of similar to what you were you describing a moment ago. So yeah, just trying to offer as wide a set of supportability for, again, the different distributions, different storage use cases, but then again, the needs of those individual workloads. The use cases in the enterprise, I, I'm sitting here, as you're describing all this, I'm remembering that we used to use specialized snapshotting of our databases so that we mm -hmm. could have read-only copies mm -hmm. yeah. right. uh, in order to do like uh, reporting and stuff like that on a separate, not without copying a complete, you know, back in the day when we had, we didn't have terabytes everywhere. You know, we'd have a 50 <laughs> gigabit data, gigabyte database that would be very costly to run on high-end storage. So we would make read-only snapshots and it would maintain, it would stay in that same storage so we didn't have complete right. copies and we didn't have to wait on the copy. There's a lot of stuff that I just assume nowadays is way easier. And it sounds like it sounds like it is with these products. But I wanted to ask a couple of quick questions. I see a lot in the terminology here, net backup chaos. What is chaos net backup specifically? Mm -hmm. Is that a different product or is that a dashboard? What is that? I would be stretching my expertise on the net backup side, but from from my understanding, that would be more of just the Kubernetes operations, not a separate product. Okay. Uh, we don't distinguish between the use cases as far as the products go. We discuss more along the lines of where the end user would be most interested in knowing where our functionality is. So for more of an operational standpoint, that's what that is uh, referring to. Okay. Yeah, I think maybe some of this stuff that... It some of these terms like the elastic data mover pod. I mean, this is one of those things where there's not a lot of people talking about this stuff. You know, 
a lot of the tools and the open source products and the things that the examples and the blogs and the 101s that I see a lot are really rudimentary when they talk about a large company. I'm not even going to say enterprise because a lot of this stuff isn't necessarily based on you could be a small startup and have to deal with this kind of stuff, right? It just depends on the complexity of your applications and your data requirements. And as we're getting into the world of AI and ML stuff, and I'm still, I still consider myself a pretty, pretty big noob when it comes to the workload backends for a lot of the modern AI stuff. And I'm, we're going to have an Olama and LLM show here eventually. We're managing the architecture that your developers need for AI and ML. But the complexities of the tightly integrated storage and backups, and then the complexity of realizing that the enterprise in the cases that I've worked ends up being a lot more complicated for storage and backups than the cloud, mostly because there's things I can't do in the cloud that I can do in the enterprise. Is that still true where you're seeing people with more advanced storage needs still choosing the data center because they frankly can't do that kind of stuff in the cloud. I mean, there's not that many cloud storage options when it comes to disks and yeah. local storage. I think one one big component when you're talking on-prem versus the cloud, the cost aspect of it, right? So I, I also run a podcast as well. And so I remember having a conversation with David Hanemeyer Hansen, and he moved all of his workloads from the cloud back on-prem. And I mean, he sends an email out giving an update around how much money they saved and they, they went and bought so a, a certain number of servers. They brought in-house expertise in to set everything up and configure it. And so he ran the numbers that it's actually more, more cost economical in order to bring everything back on site compared to the high cost that he was paying when all of his workloads were, were running in the public cloud. So I, I see that as a, as, a, as a big conversation piece mm-hmm. today is cost and saving money. And then you also look at the at the performance aspect of it as well. Like, you know, then you have to worry about, okay, what type of storage is this sitting on? Is this sitting in S3 or is it sitting on some type of cold storage? And, you know, what's the SLAs around being able to retain that data or bring that data back? So you really have to take a more strategic approach when you are, are looking at, okay, where are the workloads running? Uh, and look at it from a cost savings uh, perspective as well. And that's another reason why we actually uh, did some of the innovation we did with taking that back up and, and containerizing that as well so we can take some of that cost off the user's shoulders and spin up those pods and, and take care of all the back-end things and also save money on cost and storage and to do some slick things like deduplication, which I remember dedupe was, was a real hot topic. And Brett, I'm not sure if you remember dedupe. Oh, yeah. It was, it was crazy. Yeah, it was, it was a big real deal. crazy. Saving money everywhere. Yeah. D dupe. Yeah. I mean, we, we, it's still a thing, right? Like everybody. Absolutely. It is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to make sure yeah, I'm not is. too outdated. And it's, that's one of those things where if you don't have it and then suddenly you have it, especially for backups that you're trying to, you're storing permanently on disk, it was always a game changer for us because it allowed us to really reuse a lot of the storage without having all this duplicated data, especially back, maybe not so much anymore because we're designing applications better, but. You know, back in not even just 10 years ago, a lot of the workflows that I, I would have to work with on data centers, you know, we were backing up the VM was the backup object, you know, back before we had containers. And one of the things that really got me hooked on containers and Docker initially was the idea that the VM was no longer my deployment and backup abstraction. 
I could right. now define the workload much cleaner. It forced my developers to actually know the difference between stateful and stateless storage. Like nobody said the word stateful 15 years ago. I'd never even heard yeah. that word until the <laughs> container ecosystem sort of. It was, yeah, it was esoteric. And that, you know, that's interesting because that, that effectively is the narrative for InfoScale, right? Being able to address at a granular level, the individual workload, as opposed to having to rely on a much more macro approach where, you know, take, you know, take a virtualized environment, right? In many cases, the DR operations tend to affect the entirety of your VMware estate, whereas you might mm -hmm. have an individual workload that you need to recover, but the nature of how that architecture is requires that you move everybody at the same time instead of maybe prioritizing yeah. which workloads go first or which workloads need a particular class of storage or a particular um, method of recovery. And I think what containers and, and, and Kubernetes has done has forced the perspective to be on the workload itself and reduce the overhead on, you know, backing up that same OS image over and over and over and again, which how many times right. do you need Etsy hosts copied, you know, right. those things. But what it doesn't change though, is for stateful and, uh, and persistent workloads, the size of that database, it doesn't change the mm. size of that underlying piece, which is where yeah. we have seen that that problem has not been solved natively. Hence why we looked at InfoScale to be a, a great sort of, to, to adapt it for that environment in a way that is solved for the same way it had been solving on-prem in the physical world and on-prem in the virtual world and on-prem in the hyper-converged world. And then in the infrastructure as a service world in the cloud, and then now in the in the container Kubernetes space. Notion of individual recovery, but at scale, being able to tailor and right size how you configure the recovery methodologies, the storage classes, all the different um, methods that are necessary, but then benefit from the likes of NetBackup to help to orchestrate some of those recovery methods, uh, being able to take those optimized snapshots, space optimized snapshots, hand that off to NetBackup, catalog that, and give that level of control and autonomy back into the, into the user's hands. Yeah. And Joe, real quick, for people that are wanting to check out InfoScale, we've got some links below in the description. Yeah. There's a- Click, click I, somewhere. Click somewhere. <laughs> There's, I don't know, it's above it, or below. They're all safe. They're all yeah. safe, yeah. There, there, there are links somewhere in the interface, depending yeah. on where you're watching or listening to this. <laughs> exactly. It might be in a description, it might be in a show notes, but InfoScale does have a trial, a 60-day trial, right? And then the developer edition, what, is, what does, yeah, in this case, what does developer edition mean? What does developer edition mean? Well, one of the things that we wanted to do was not only introduce this technology to the to a broader community, but also embrace the nature of how that, that community you know interfaces with this technology. And what we've offered now through uh, our developer edition is a free version of the product that you can deploy in a more conservative uh, form factor, right? I believe it's up to three nodes in a particular Kubernetes cluster with our storage management capabilities, right? So much of what we've been describing over the last you know hour or so. If, if you do find that that does solve your needs and that you want to expand to a more of production sort of enterprise deployment, we do also offer a trial of our enterprise version of the product, which gives you full access to all the bells and whistles, all the good stuff that you want to take, you want to take advantage of. Uh, and then from there, just to kind of give you, you know, insight here, the licensing is really based on the worker nodes at a compute level. So the cores that are deployed inside of that cluster is how we determine the licensing. All right. So for those that are interested in finding out the new hotness in NetBackup. I had to, just to have this show, I had to go catch up because I realized that <laughs> yeah. I was outdated in my knowledge. And you can, there's all these links in the description. So go find out all that stuff, all the resources and information for how to check out these products and consider NetBackup for your Kubernetes needs. Thank you so much for being here. Also below, by the way, Demetrius and Joe, I've got links for them, all, all their socials. If you didn't know, Demetrius, what's the name of your podcast? 
so we can find that. Oh, the podcast is Data Protection Gumbo. So just Google that, or you nice. can go to dataprotectiongumbo.com. So. And you also do some stuff on LinkedIn, right? A little bit. I am a little bit visible on LinkedIn, so <laughs> customer-facing, you know, type of yeah promotion there. I need to take some notes because you're you you got you got, you've amassed a community over there. So if you're on LinkedIn, which I've been using more this year as Twitter has Twitter's demise, I'm yeah. learning to follow more people on LinkedIn. I, I will, was really surprised this year how much I can learn on LinkedIn without having to leave. Which it, those of us that lived in Twitter, and I've been a Twitter person forever. Is, you know, there's not really a lot of information in the tweet. So I'm always clicking on things and going elsewhere. But it's, <laughs> it takes it's nice. you it takes you to the information. But yeah. That's right. And it's really nice because on LinkedIn, people actually have been, I've been following Demetrius. I've been following uh, Dan Lorick from uh, Chain Garden. I've been learning all this stuff lately. And I realized I never really have to click links. I just, I can learn it all in the post because we can actually yeah. do that in LinkedIn yeah. on like Twitter. Uh, <laughs> no character limit. I'm still having problems trying to call Twitter X. Which yeah, I'm not sure. Not that, to me, but, not, and I'm not paying a dollar either. The, art, the artist formerly known as Twitter, I think. is. <laughs> yeah, it's always fun when I see slides and they, they get the new logo as to the old logo. And Is that and, the uh, Exceed? Do you guys remember Exceed, that windowing, that console windowing tool? Yes. For, yes. And I think that's Unix. the same X. For I Unix, yes. The same X. Is that related to Hummingbird? Yeah, it was Hummingbird. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I thought that was the same. As soon as I saw that, I'm like, this is taking me back to my terminal days. And I'm like, it's I don't, all, I don't want, I don't want I think to do it's that. also from an old version of Excel. I think that was also yeah. the logo yeah. for like 1995 Excel. Probably in the public domain at this point. Well, the X-Files. Don't, or the X-Files. X-Files. The X-Files. There you go. Oh, man. Well, it was great having you both on. Of course, links yeah. below, everyone, if you want to follow Demetrius on yeah. uh, LinkedIn. And, and come check us out. We'll, you want to see a demo of this? You want to get more into the into the technology and learn more about it? Come come find us. We'll be happy to have, have a conversation with you guys. And, and, and actually, if you want, you can probably send Joe an email right now, and he'll give you a personal demo. I'm just saying. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, nothing like throwing the gauntlet down oh on the internet. Hey, don't worry. It's only here forever. It's Unbelievable. fine. Thank you so much for being here. All right. Thank you so much, Brett. Take care, guys. Bye.